Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. All right, we're done our fun today because now we're in Revelation and it's serious business. If you're new with us uh, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm visiting a church that's in the book of Revelation, where is this going to go? Let me try to give you just one piece of information that hopefully understand, helps you to understand the context in which we're approaching this very important book in the Bible from. Why does Revelation exist in the Bible? What is its message? What is its purpose? Now, if you've been with us since mid-June, you're like, okay, I've heard this before. Maybe you're trying to memorize it. That'll help only help you. Here's a paragraph answer. I think it's just a run-on sentence. Uh, I'm not a grammar person, but thank you, grammar police, for pointing that out. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age. Does that sound like the world we're living in right now, too? My goodness, this was very, very real 2,000 years ago. But in our own way, we experience this here and now, don't we? And people all around the globe, followers of Jesus, some far more intensely than we are, are experiencing tremendous, tremendous pressure. The revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is actually going on behind the scenes so that they could see who the true or the real Lord and Savior of the whole world really is and settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship belongs to. 2,000 years ago, the first followers of Jesus that were forming new communities of faith, faith called churches, little churches in what's now ancient or what's now Turkey, uh, they were facing enormous pressure and difficulty. And they were faced with the temptation to either make compromises, serious compromises, or remain faithful to Jesus, faithful to the Lamb and the way of the Lamb, at risk of losing their lives or the possessions or their loved ones. It was a difficult circumstance. A message needed to be sent to the first followers of Jesus, and that is one of the important things that lives within the Revelation. If we were to summarize this paragraph or the whole Revelation into two words, you all know by now the two words would be this. (laughs) Boy, somebody confidently gave another word in there. Uh, Behold Jesus. Uh, And if we were to include four words, so two other ones, then it would be behold Jesus and the response worship, the response witness. These themes come up over and over again throughout the book. There's lots of opportunity if you're newer to this series with us to go back online and catch up on many things that we've covered so far since mid-June in this series, but I just want to reflect backwards one week. Last week, we worked our way into some very treacherous-seeming territory in the book of Revelation. Chapters 6 through 20 contain some very difficult, swirling, complex, moody chaos and what's going on in the midst of all of that. Last week, we spent time in chapter 6, and then the beginning of chapter 8, which includes the seven seals. So for those of you who are not there, here's a recap. For those of us who were here, here's a recap. There are seven seals, begins with four horses, then there's souls, cosmic collapse, silence, then heaven quake. But what is going on? What do each of these represent? Notice the big picture themes as we fly above at 30,000 feet over the seven seals. There's conquest, there's violence, there's oppression, there's death martyrdom, catastrophic events, and then there's prayer, followed by a a dynamic expression of God's power. I mean, these seven things, or the six 
first ones especially, if we're to look around our world today, do we see any evidence that some of this is already going on now? Absolutely. If you, if you pay attention to history, it seems that these things have been going on for quite a while. Why is that? What is going on? As we talked about last week, when there's a clash of kingdoms, as there is going on right now, there's resistance and upheaval resulting in these kind of things. But God's kingdom is coming. Now, before we move along, I just want to give you two quick thoughts. And these are maybe from the pastoral part of my heart where I just want to make sure everyone has the opportunity to process things on their own, to ponder things. I'm comfortable with the fact that in a church like ours, there are going to be people who approach the same text maybe from a different perspective, or uh, the last bunch of years, they've maybe been thinking about it from this way. And for some of us, we're wrestling our way through this text and what's going on. And that's okay. I'm comfortable with the fact that in a church like ours, we will, through a series like this, and even after a series like this, hold different views on things. But two things I want to say with that in mind. The first is this. I want to just uh, encourage everyone who has serious study and serious thoughts about the book of Revelation that you're bringing into our study together to evaluate your influences. Some in North America have been heavily influenced by end times teaching that is less than 200 years old and was very popularized about 50 years ago. And... um, When we think about approaching scripture to understand what it means today, we must understand what it meant originally to the first hearers. And if there's teaching that has become popular, you know, in the last 200 years or 50 years, it's a, a big clue to us that that was not in the mind of the writer, in the original intent, and it was not in the mind of the first hearers. And so it's worth just evaluating, okay? Keep that in mind as you approach. Um... As some of these ideas, theories, even theologies that have been developed have come about, they give little to no regard for original meaning and message, and it's worth just paying attention. Is that important to you or not as you look at Scripture? So evaluate that. Second thought is this. In the Western world church, we suffer from this disease where we think it's all about us all the time, right? Because we're the most developed part of the world, right? And so we've got it all figured out and too bad for everybody else. Um, one of the terrible side effects of that is that we begin to assume that if it's not happening to us, then it must not be happening much at all, or it just doesn't count enough. And so um, it leads us, in some cases, to believe things like this. Once that kind of stuff begins happening to us, then it'll be end times. And it's just too bad that it's happening to 310 million people around the world right now who follow Jesus, but sorry, you're not... It's not end times because it's not happening in the Western world. And so we have to just pay attention to sometimes in our Western view on things, we can be quite arrogant and pompous. Um, and it's, we just have to be globally aware, historically aware. Uh, ask 310 million persecuted Christians today if it feels like that list that you're seeing right now. Um, ask the thousands who are part of churches that were attacked if it feels like that list right now. Ask the thousands who have been imprisoned for the name of Jesus, if it feels like that list right now. Ask, if you could, the thousands who have died this year, um, not for sort of having a, a periphery kind of social agenda attached to Jesus, no, for simply believing that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior and they've died because of it this year. Thousands have. Ask them if it feels like that list is happening right now. And we in the Western world may be like, yeah, there's some of this, but it's not the end times yet because we're not experiencing it. Fooey on that. Look at the six seals. 
96 AD was happening. It's happening now, and sadly, it will continue to happen. Not so sadly, until the return of Christ and the culmination of all things, which seems like an end, but actually is a triumphant new beginning. Um, I know that some of us are visual people, so in the effort of helping us sort of piece together some of what we've been talking about big picture-wise, not just in this series, but maybe through the last year, year and a half, uh, I've got some sketches for you. Forgive how they've turned out, but let's go to the first one here. I just want to explain some things. The, the graphic, and it may not be so easy to see there. The circle in the middle is supposed to be the earth. I worked really hard to color it nicely, but you can hardly see it there. So if I ever show this again, I'll get the colors better in the, in the earth. But I even put Vancouver Island on there because, you know, it's all about us, right? We're in the Western world. So if it, Okay, so what we have here, just as, uh, as you think about things with me, we have two realities. We have a seen reality, which, look around, we're in it, and an unseen reality. And when you use your eyes, you can't see it. It's unseen. But through Scripture, we are aware that there is a very, very real unseen reality. Amen? Now, there's three realms. One of the realms is seen, Two of the realms are unseen. So there are two significant influences that are pressing their way towards earth, trying to bear influence into how things happen on earth. We have a kingdom of heaven. I'm trying to simplify things, so forgive some of the terminology used here. A kingdom of heaven and then a kingdom of hell. And let's just contrast these things. Who runs the kingdom of heaven? The Father, Son, the Spirit. So it's God himself. The kingdom of hell, initiated by Satan himself, but as he cooperates or finds partners who uh, are happy to champion the power of the autonomous self, he's got partners in the world, which is self. And unfortunately for all of us, I think we all find ourselves at times very guilty as, as charged on the self front, unfortunately. Now let's just contrast some of the realities. What comes from heaven? Well, love does. So what comes from hell? Fear. Life from heaven, death from hell. Liberty. Bondage, light, darkness. Now, where do people fit into all of this? We're all around the world. The reality, and what I want you to think about today for a moment, is that people are gateways. Can you say gateways? gateways. People are gateways. We live in the seen physical realm, but all of us, every human is in touch and influenced by unseen realms in some ways. And our lives, depending on our choices, become an opportunity to become a gateway for realities from heaven or realities from hell. Now, you see the, uh, the two people that are in, on earth but sort of under the influence of heaven. No, go back a step, thanks. Um, that's not spiky hair. They've got crowns. <laughs> Kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. I think some of you thought it was hair. You're like, oh, okay. Why do the Christians have buzz cuts? Um, <laughs> Kingdom of priests, and I won't go deeply into this, but for the last while we've been talking about how God has delegated authority to humanity, and so who humanity chooses to partner with, the serpent or the king, Jesus himself, um, influences what goes on on earth significantly. But you and I are part of a royal family. We have a priestly purpose and authority here on earth. Now, I just want to, before we go on to the next slides, I, I want you to just think for a moment. I, I touched on this a bit last week. I wrote about it in the Dearly Beloved as well this past week. Think about the massive um, 
implications and potential connected to words. You and I cannot transport ourselves into unseen realms, but our words can go there. And they have massive influence and impact. And this word, though physical with us right now, has all of its inspiration from an unseen realm. So we have a message from an unseen realm that's come very much alive. The word became flesh and dwelled among us, and he inspires this word for us. We have words coming from that realm that shape our lives and have the opportunity to influence how we live our lives. And as you pray, and as you worship, you are affecting not only things on earth, but things in unseen realms. We're drawing on that influence and bringing it into ward earth. With me? Make sense? Good. Okay. Let me just tie in another thing. Here's a few more diagrams for you. I know none of you are wondering about this, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. How did the five trees fit into the story of everything going on throughout the last while? Okay. In the creation, in the beginning, there was two trees. That's a better drawing. Can you see the earth there? The Vancouver Island? Okay. Tree of life, tree of death. Tree of life, tree of freedom. Humanity has the opportunity to choose. Where will I partner? Which tree will I eat of? A tree of dependence or a tree of independence? And so we know from the Genesis story what happens. Humanity, Adam and Eve, and we all point our finger and blame them. And then as we mature as followers of Jesus, we realize that's me. I'm Adam and Eve too. We choose to eat of independence. We've fallen to the influence of the serpent. And so what did that do to our world? Next image. A dark kingdom bears its influence seemingly with a belief that it has authority to do so all over the world. Now, is God thinking, uh-oh, things have not gone according to plan here. Uh, what do we do? Roll it, you know, crumple it up, throw it out? No. He begins something. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, he finds someone. Remember, the whole world is under this kind of influence. But next slide, we find that God finds someone near a tree called Mamre. His name is Abraham. It's important to remember that Abraham was just as pagan as the rest of the world. God wasn't looking for somebody who was like doing his devotions regularly, had done well in Sunday school, knew a few scriptures, and was like, I can work with that guy. Abraham was pagan. This is grace from God. He was finding someone who who would be willing to take a chance on God. And that's where the first Abba song came out. Um, And so God enters into a relationship with Abram, and it's pure grace, because, and this is really important, it's pure grace because of not how impressive Abraham was, but how painfully normal he was as compared to what was going on in the world, and God chooses him anyways. And uh, Abraham and his wife cannot have children, and God shows up saying, you're going to have the biggest family in the world. That's grace, because it's impossible. This is all about what God does. So he enters into a relationship with Abram, And he forms a covenant family out of Abram. This is where Israel comes from. Israel is so important. He forms covenant with them. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, it's complex stuff. There's highs and lows and difficulties and victories and lots of failures and defeats. And and what's being shown off? How bad Israel is at following God? No, the faithfulness of God to his covenants with his people. So that third tree is about faithfulness. It's essential to understanding scripture, the Old Testament, and the character and nature of God. God starts doing something special on earth through Abraham, through Israel, and God's original intent through Israel was to bless the whole world, to bring the whole world into a relationship with Yahweh himself. Okay, what happens later? 
God himself shows up. He's promised somebody's going to come, a Messiah, a rescuer is going to show up. And he, if you look at it in the Old Testament, prophetic writings, he's actually giving indications, I'm the one who's coming. Yahweh's coming, Yahweh's coming. And it was too, I mean, it was almost seemed too good to be true for the people. Because when he showed up, they, they could hardly believe this is actually Yahweh among us, but it was Jesus. And so the kingdom of God starts breaking into the world when? At Christmas and Easter and still today. The king and his kingdom begin coming, begin breaking in. Now we know that there's a fifth tree. We see it later in Revelation. Let's go to the next image. One day, the kingdom of darkness will be completely driven out of our world. And the kingdom of God will completely fill our world. Heaven and earth will be reformed into a new heaven and a new earth. This is the renewal of all things. That tree that shows up in the end of Revelation is the tree of life that was in the beginning of Genesis. There was a renewal of all things. In fact, at the end of Revelation, we find the one on the throne saying this, Behold, I'm making all things new. And so this is our great hope. He's going to do it. He will do it. He will do it in our lives. He will do it in our world one day. And so we continue to pray that his kingdom would come. Now, I want us to go back just for a moment and think about the time that we're living in right now. This is the reality we live in. This is what's been going on since Christmas and Easter. The first ones. The kingdom of God is bearing its way into our world through Jesus and his work now through his people. And as we looked at last week, what is the result? What happens? Does the kingdom of darkness say, oh, good, you've shown up. Here's the keys. Have, have your way. We'll, we'll just head out. No. The kingdom of darkness is defeated. But as the kingdom of God continues to move more and more into our world, there are what we see in the six seals. Resistance. Upheaval. There is a present clash of two kingdoms. It's as if, you know, when earthquakes occur, there's tectonic plates that live beneath the surface of the earth, and there's immense pressure that starts pushing and pushing and pushing together, and at some point, that pressure cannot remain forced toward each other, and it pops up, and there's a significant earthquake. You and I are living in a world that's experiencing the pressure of clashing kingdoms. One has already won. One has already triumphed and the other is resisting and causing all kinds of upheaval on its way out. There's a word in scripture that describes this kind of pressure. Crushing, crushing pressure. Ready for a Greek word? I want you to learn this with me. Philipsis. Can you say Philipsis? Philipsis is a crushing pressure when the kind that happens when two kingdoms are clashing. So that's important to keep in mind. All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 7. That's our text for today, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is kind of like yesterday morning. Remember Friday, the weather? Remember Friday night? Did your house blow over? Almost. It was wicked and wild on Friday, wasn't it? And then we wake up Saturday morning... And the sun shows up, and there's blue skies. It was actually warm yesterday morning. I was driving around, and I saw people in T-shirts and shorts walking their dogs or out with their kids. didn't last long, but it was sort of this nice morning. And when you're in like a setting that we're in, where we've just come out of a major storm, and you wake up to a nice morning, 
there's kind of like, oh, this is lovely. Now, what, what do we all know? The next storm is on its way, right? And what, what, the next storm is on its way, but what we experienced yesterday morning was a foretaste of what we'll get to enjoy in a future season. What is chapter seven like? Exactly that. Chapter six is chaos and it's, it's awful, isn't it? And then all of a sudden chapter seven shows up and it's like, oh, the sun, blue skies. It's what we're gonna enjoy in a future season. So to understand chapter seven properly, we actually should go back uh, to how chapter six ends. Because it ends with an important question. So let's begin in the last verse of chapter 6. It says this, For the great day of the wrath of the Lamb and God has come. Who can stand? That's the last question that is associated with the first six seals. They're so awful. There's so much thalipsis going on. The question on earth is, who can actually stand? And I'm sure as the first hearers of this letter, this message 2,000 years ago, were hearing it, they're, they're hearing these seals being broken, they're hearing of all the chaos going on, and they're like, this sounds like the world we're alive in right now. You mean this is going to continue until Jesus returns in the culmination of all things? Who can actually make it through this? Are we going to go down with the ship too? Let's read together into chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having a seal of the, uh, of the living God. He called out, called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land and the sea uh, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Just a quick comment on that. I know it's a bit complex. Like, what are the angels doing? The earth itself is in need of a purifying renewal. For anybody who loves uh, Pride and Prejudice, Lady Catherine de Bourgh says this, are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted? I'm terrible at accents, so I won't even try that. But uh, she's quite offended about the possibility of Elizabeth Bennet moving into the, the household, Pemberley. And she so dramatically expresses how disappointed she is with what's going on. She feels as if the shades of the building itself will be polluted by this woman coming in to live there one day. The reality is, the influence of Satan on earth, the influence of independent humanity, which all of us are guilty of, has brought about in its own way an infection or a pollution to the earth itself. And so what do we see? Here's what's going on. The angels, are there's something that they have a responsibility into. God has a work going on at some point of renewing creation itself. Now, a seal is mentioned. Remember the question is, who can stand? There's a significant answer here. Those who are sealed, something is going to happen to you. What does seal mean? In the ancient world... A seal, we know that there's seven seals on the document. There's uh, an indication that the seven seals on the document reflect that there's an identity from somebody important. There's an important message. So there's this idea that seals always indicate uh, a special purpose for something. But also to be known of the context of the day is that in many Roman households throughout the Roman Empire, if there were servants that lived in the home, they were sealed. They were physically marked as belonging to that household. 
And I mean, it was a pretty negative thing because if they ex escaped, it was easy to trace who belongs to who and you get back there or else, that kind of thing. But it was a, a sign of ownership. In the text here, as we're going to see, it's a sign of protection. It is a sign of ownership. We can belong to the Lamb if we are sealed by him. And who can stand? Well, those who are sealed are protected. Let's move along into verse 4. Then I heard. Could everybody say, I heard? I heard. This is important. We're going to notice a pattern that occurred earlier in Revelation. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Without going too deeply into this, let's just point out some things that maybe live a little bit obviously to us. 144,000, big number. Numbers in Revelation so far have always been symbols, never literal. You know, and that's good news to us. Because some of us, you know, we read that and think, okay, is there only room for 144,000 in the future? Because how do I get in and uh, I want my family in too and I'm sorry for the others if you don't get in but I need to be in. That's not how this works. What we notice here is that the number 12 must figure significantly, hey? 12 times 12 is what? 144. Where do we find significant 12s in Scripture? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. This represents the people of God. Something about 144,000 means the people of God. A thousand, what does that mean in Scripture? It means lots. And we still use that today. You know, Matt Redman wrote a song, 10,000 Reasons. If you sometimes, like me, suffer from being too literal at times, you're like, wow, 10,000, hey? Um, I was at a Remembrance Day uh, event yesterday where someone read a poem called uh, A Thousand Men Walking. A Thousand Men Walking. Well, we know through the history of recent wars that there was far more than a thousand, but in the way that it was portrayed poetically, it was very beautiful because it just sounded right, a thousand men walking. We're like, ah, that means lots. And that's what it meant. It meant sort of this idea of a very big or an uncountable number. So 144,000. What did John hear? He heard 144,000. What can we understand that to mean? An uncountable number of God's People. Then it goes on to say this, we won't read through all of it, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, then goes through Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Ishakar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Now, if you're studying that list, you know, at first glance, you're like, oh, okay, great, the 12 tribes of Israel. <clears throat> but there's actually some significant differences that live in this list than what we see in the Old Testament. And the first one is this, who's named first? Not Reuben. Well, he's the firstborn. He should appear at first in all the lists, but Judah does this time. Why? Because Jesus has changed Israel forever. He came from Judah. Now, what else do we notice? Joseph's in, and Dan is out. Uh, that's very different from lists that we see in the Old Testament. What can we draw from that without going too deeply into details and theories and thoughts? Here's what stands out. Something significant has changed about Israel because of Jesus. And friends, this is important. God is not replacing Israel. He has extended her borders to reach globally. Israel, what we're seeing here is Israel has become what it was always meant to be. Israel is now bringing the blessing to nations, the blessing of God to nations, the knowledge of Yahweh to nations 
God's work through Israel is reaching everywhere. Let's go to verse 9. After this, so remember what we said in verse 4? Then I heard, listen to this. After this, I looked. Can everybody say, I looked? looked. Say it one more time, I need a drink. Thank you. He looked. Can anybody think of a time earlier in Revelation where John hears something and then sees something? Hear something, then see something. We find this going on in Revelation chapter 5. I heard someone say, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then what does he do? I looked, and did he see a lion? No. He saw a lamb. We're having the same kind of experience occur. After this, I looked, and in the Greek text, it says there, and behold, he wants his readers, his hearers, us, to see something With him. So turn on the eyes of your heart right now and let's see this together. What does John see? I looked and behold, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. It's funny to begin a prayer with Amen, isn't it? But they did in heaven. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes. Who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Let me read that again. He said, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Is this New news, this idea of tribulation? No. In fact, what is the word that's used here in the Greek? Philipsis. These are those who's, who've made it through. Who, remember the question is who can stand? Who can stand? The unnumbered, uncountable people of God, those who are sealed by the Lamb, those are the ones who can get through the great Thalipsis. Now, this is actually not the first time the word thalipsis or tribulation occurs in Revelation. This is actually the last time the word appears. It only appears four times before. It's the word thalipsis, crushing pressures. So is John saying that a new thalipsis is coming? No, it's been going on already since Christmas. Uh, if you flip to the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9, as John is writing a little bit of an introduction about himself and the purpose of his writings, he says this, I, John, your brother and companion in what? Philipsis and kingdom and perseverance. Three important words. Sometimes it's tra- uh, translated suffering there or trials there, but it's the same word. It could be tribulations there. I, John, your brother, am writing to you in 96 AD, and right now I share with you in Philipsis. Tribulation is happening now. 
and kingdom is happening now, and perseverance is happening now. Those three words belong together in Revelation 1.9, and they belong together for us today. Who can stand when there's thalipsis? It's because there's kingdom, and the call to us is perseverance. In 96 AD, John was already experiencing tribulation, thalipsis. The seven churches that we read of scattered through what is Turkey today, what were they experiencing? Thalipsis. They weren't thinking, oh, a new Philipsis is coming. They're realizing, remember those six things they saw in the seal? Yeah, this is happening right now. There's resistance, there's upheaval. Philipsis is occurring right now. The 310 million Christians in the world who are persecuted today are experiencing Philipsis, tribulation. Let's carry on with the text, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The, thun, the, thun, the sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As we moved into the second part of chapter 7, we discovered John wants us to behold something really quickly. I want us to observe four things. There's many more, I'm sure, but four things I want us to see together today. The first is this. Behold how God is worshipped in this text. Is he worshipped casually and with sort of golf claps? No, I mean, we're getting a glimpse into heaven. How does heaven worship God right now? Think about how mighty angels must be. Think about the four living creatures. They're supposed to be the representations of the four greatest expressions of God's creation, the elders. Do they care about their dignity? Do they care about what other people must think about them? Like, I'm kind of nervous about raising my hands in worship because somebody else might notice. No, they're falling down before him, crying out in loud voices with great volume. There's passionate Worship of God in heaven and friends, God is worthy of our best today, right now too. Amen? Two, behold who victory belongs to. Salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb. He has triumphed. Now what else do we find? White robes and palm branches. Both of them feature in scripture and in ancient culture as symbols of victory. Who gets to share in his victory? Who benefits from his victory? Those of us who follow the lamb and his way into this world. The lamb has triumphed, no matter the thalipsis. No matter how discouraged you and I may feel sometimes, victory belongs to the lamb. Third, behold where the lamb's people are. Look with me at verse 15 quickly. Therefore, those who've been sealed by the lamb... They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. In the Greek language, in scripture, we find two words used in Greek for temple. The first word is hieron, hieron. And that, that means sort of the whole property that the temple sits on. It means all the courts and all the sections of the temple, all of it, the building, the property, the land, the court uh, for the Jewish world, the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the place where sacrifices could occur, all of it, Huron. There's another word for temple in Greek, it's naos, naos, and that is not the whole property, it's the sanctuary, the, 
the holy place and the most holy place. There's two significant parts of the temple, a holy place and then the most holy place. In the holy place, only Levites could go in there, one tribe. Notice how they're not named there too. I would be concerned if I was a Levite. I'm like, I don't get into the 144,000. Again, just proof that it's symbolic, not to be taken literally. Levites could only go in to that area, the holy place. Priests would go in there daily. And then the most holy place, that's where symbolically God lived on earth, in the most holy place. And could humans just go in and out of there willy-nilly whenever they wanted in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. One per- not even all the Levites could go in there. One person, once a year, was allowed a brief visit in there on behalf of all humanity, the high priest. So when we read verse 15, it says this, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his naos. That's you and I. Where are we? Are we in the temple property? Are we kind of like, yeah, we're allowed to hang out in the court of the Gentiles because we're not ethnically Jewish or whatever? No. We're allowed full access to the most holy place. It's been changed because of Jesus. Wow. And John wants us to see this. The Spirit wants you to see this. You have complete access to the throne of God, to the holiest places in his temple. Where are we in this story? As close to God as possible. Wow. Oh, that's good. Fourth thing to behold in this text. Look at what the new heaven and new earth are like. Remember how I said this is sort of like yesterday morning's weather? Remember the question at the end of chapter 6 is, who can stand? And so there's this interlude. Okay, I want to show you who can stand. It's the people who make through Philipsis. How do they get through? They've been sealed somehow because of Jesus. Wow. And this is what it'll be like for them. And remember how yesterday morning we knew it wasn't spring yet. We knew it wasn't summer yet. But it was a foretaste of a future season ahead. That's what's going on here. We're seeing what we're in for. This is what the new heaven and earth are like. Are there tears? There will be no more death, no more mourning, no, no more crying, no, no more pain. And we find out this is echoed in the end of Revelation where after triumphantly saying this, it says this, for the old order of things has passed away. It will happen one day. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. There's life. There's provision. And the lamb, the lamb is at the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd. What a beautiful picture. A lamb being a shepherd to sheep. And what is it saying about his tent there in verse 15? And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. If you look in the Old Testament, that absolutely and only means his presence. The first comment about the temple, now us, that means we get as close to God as we can. The comment about him spreading his tent, this is God getting as close to us as he can. He is reaching for all of us with his presence. It's him saying, I will reside permanently with you. That is good news. Friends, chapter 6 asks this, who can stand? And chapter 7 answers, the sealed, those who put their trust in Jesus alone. Chapter 6 asks, as the world bears judgment upon itself, are we to go down with the ship too? And chapter 7 says, no. You will be held secure through suffering, through death, and into new life. Chapter 6 describes 
apocalypsis, the kind of chaos that ensues as a victorious kingdom ousts a defeated and resistant kingdom. And chapter 7 says, Jesus will bring you through. No emperor, no cultural influence, no pagan god, no devil can stop Jesus from bringing you and I through. Will there be Philipsis? Yes. Can they kill you? Yes. But they cannot touch your soul. It's hid in Christ on high. He has claimed you. Jesus says this in John 10. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. And he says this in John 16. In this world you will have Philipsis is the word used there. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So perhaps the final question for us to consider today, what is the seal? How do we get it? What is the seal? Very quickly. The first century church knew what the seal was. Ephesians chapter one. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians chapter four, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Second Corinthians one, it should say 21, not 12, 21 and 22, that's my mistake. God sealed us and gave us what? His spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Could we stand together today? It's a very real thing for people like you and I to wonder at times, in the midst of all that's going on in our world, like are we gonna, what if they kill me? You will be held through. The picture and the promise is in Jesus himself. The philipsis of the world came upon him at the cross and he appeared defeated by death. But what did he do? In that moment he defeated death itself. He won the victory permanently for you and I. This is good news. What we find following the resurrection of Jesus, he gathers with his disciples in John 10. He breathes on them and he says, receive what? The Holy Spirit. I am sealing you. You can make it through because my spirit will live in you. You see, anybody on earth right now can have the opportunity to have a John 20 experience where you realize, I don't think I've ever asked God to to live in me. But he offers that. By my spirit, I can live in you. And what's beautiful, some of us would be like, well, I've, most of us, I think, would say, I've had that. You're sealed by him, by his spirit. It's wonderful. It's good news. God dwells in you. But we have the opportunity to have an Acts 2. In Acts 2, we hear of the Spirit not just filling within, but he comes upon the church for power. The seal of God comes upon the church and enables them to live out their call of witness in the world. And some of us would say, well, I've had that too. I've had an experience like that. And wonderful. We find that all of us then are qualified for an Acts 4. The same group that was together in Acts 2 and experienced that first baptism of the Spirit was together in Acts 4. What was happening in Acts 4? They were feeling philipsis. The Roman authorities around them, the Jewish authorities around them were threatening them. 
What should we do? Should we back down? No, there was a refreshing touch of the seal, the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 4 to empower them for ongoing service in their world. Today, as we respond, some of us might realize, I, I, I don't think I've ever actually asked God to live in my life through Jesus Christ. Today, you can have that experience. Some of you may realize, well, I, I'm not sure that I've actually had kind of an Acts 2 moment where the Spirit comes upon me and empowers me for his mission in this world. And others might think, I've, I've had that, but you mean I can have a refreshing work of the Spirit? Absolutely. If you're comfortable with this, would you just join me in this moment in holding out your hands? Again, nothing magical about it, but in a symbolic kind of way, it's sort of us saying, okay, God, I'm open to you. I'm open to you. I want to just lead us in a prayer right now. Father, for those who are journeying with us, maybe in a a season of life where they're actually contemplating deep things of faith. They're thinking about things they've not thought about before. And in this moment, they're thinking, you know, I'm not sure that I've ever asked Jesus to live in my life by his spirit. Father, would you move in their life in a fresh way? Friend, if that's you, just in the quietness of this moment, why don't you, under your breath, just between you and God, would you just whisper that to him? Say, God, I, Jesus, I want you to come and fill my life. I, I want to be sealed by your spirit. I want you to live in me. There would be some who would say, I've, I've not had an Acts 2 kind of moment. And in this moment, Father, I pray for them that in a beautiful, powerful way, whether it's in this service right now or when they go home or later in the week, that your spirit would come upon them in a powerful way, that you would baptize them in your spirit and then for those who've experienced that but there's a hunger for more of your spirit a refreshing touch of your spirit would you do an acts for kind of work in our lives i'm seeking this god i'm open to this i want this just as we continue in this reflective moment of prayer uh, i'm going to invite our prayer ministry team whoever's on for today to come forward right away here as we conclude today, I'm going to lead in a corporate prayer for us, but maybe some of you have a particular need that you're thinking about or situation, something concerned in your life. We would love to pray with you today. Father, I now pray for your blessing to rest on each person, each household, each family represented here. We're going into your world on your mission, and we declare again our dependence upon you. We need you. We need one another. We ask for the anointing and power of your spirit. And we ask for the kind of thing that can only happen as we're connected to others on mission in our community. Unite us with others in groups and in this church family to bring about the good news of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life right here in the Comox Valley. We pray this in the strongest name, which is yours, Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Those of you who are following along in groups, uh, discussion guide and information will be posted online for you to follow along. More information will be coming your way this week on how you can access resources from the church to help your group in its Christmas outreach together. Speaking of Christmas, as we now approach the Christmas season, uh, brace yourself. I mean, it's going to come upon you whether you want it to or not. You will be filled with the Christmas spirit as well. If you need some help with that, try Pride and Prejudice, original BBC version. It's long. If you get sick, it's good to watch it then, but... God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon, evening, and week. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. 
Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. 